close. Close. Acher actually means other. Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. So, Sitra Acher is Aramaic. In Hebrew, it would be Acher. And it means other side. Which is a helpful description, right? Because other side, what does other side mean? Are we Ibrahim working at side? Yes, but not the same other side. But that does illustrate my point about the problem of using a phrase like other side. Right, right. You have to like pick a point of reference and then you can talk about the other side, right? I, I, you know, I, I teach Gemara, and one of the things that people have a hard time with is that when you speak, you use pronouns. He, it, she, they. And uh, the Gemara also uses pronouns, but it's complicated legal discussions. And so people forget that they need to remember which, what the pronoun refers to, what's your point of reference. So if it says, he told her, who's the he, who's the her, who's the you, right? Okay. So other side is the same issue, right? You need a point of reference. One of the basic teachings in Kabbalah is that all of reality is divided into two sides. The side of holiness and the other side. Why is it called the other side? Because it's not not holy, it's just not. Why not give it a name? Like there's the side of holiness and then the side of... Right, because we don't want to have a name. Name give means it has an identity, it has a power. The, the, the whole, what Kabbalah is trying to educate us into is that we should not think of it as two equal um, things, but rather there's one thing, which is the real thing, that's holiness, and then there's everything else. Um, to... Now, so we can't really understand what sitrachah is the other side unless you have to know what the holiness because all sitrachah means is it's not the side of holiness. It doesn't, doesn't, it's not any more descriptive than that. Now, later on in Tanya, the Altar is going to give a deeper, more rigorous explanation of these concepts. But here, we're just going to rely on a very basic understanding. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they think they understand you and you think they don't understand you? That happened to you? Yes. Yes. Okay. So if somebody thinks that they if somebody thinks that they understand the point that you're making, okay? And you think that they don't understand the point that you're making. You have a problem of determining who's actually correct here. Now, who's right? You who say that you're not understood or they who say they really understand you? Right. So, so there's one level where we could, where we, where we could ar- argue about this. We could like, look at what is the information you're actually trying to convey and did they actually understand it? Did they not actually understand it? Like, it is theoretically possible, for instance, this happens as a teacher. You might explain an idea. The student says they understood it. This teacher's convinced they didn't, but it turns out the student really did understand it. I mean, that could theoretically happen. But that's if we look at the information being transmitted as detached from the speaker. Just 
I don't know, it's mathematics, it's Lahab the Halacha. It's, a, it, it's, some, it's something um, that it happens to be the, te- the, the speaker knew and the, the listener didn't know beforehand. But it's not about, the, it's, not, it's not the kind of thing that is really about the speaker themselves. On the other hand, if we take into account that when a person speaks, it's not just about that there's information being transmitted. You're transmitting information because you want to connect, you want to be understood, you want to be heard, okay? So part of really hearing somebody is that the speaker feels like not just the, the, the dry facts of what I said were grasped, but where I was coming from, why I'm saying this, this was all picked up. And so you can say, for instance, and this happens a lot, you know, in, in you know, parents and children, siblings, spouses, where someone is saying something and the information being said is understood, but the why it's being said, where it's coming from, all of that deeper dimension to the speech is not being picked up on and therefore the person who's speaking legitimately is correct in saying, I don't feel heard. And in fact, if you look at it on that level, on that deeper interpersonal level, that speaking is about connecting to others, if the person doesn't feel heard, they're always right, by definition. Even if the dry facts were actually successfully transmitted to the listener. Now, what does that mean? God creates the world, and the analogy that's used in the Torah and is elaborated in Chassidus is through speech. So God creates the world through speech. So basically, everything is God talking to you. Everything you encounter is just another way of God talking to you. Now here's a question. Did you hear what God is trying to say? And how are we supposed to, who, who has the right to answer that question? Do you have the right to answer the question or does God have the right to answer that question? What? Only God, right? Because you say, well, I, yeah, I really picked up on what God's trying to tell me. But it's like, well, I mean, maybe you got some of the facts right. Maybe you got something superficially true. But if at the end of the day, I don't feel that what I was trying to express has been fully appreciated by you, then you didn't get it. Even if, in my experience of reality, I was like, what did I miss? Like, you know, A, B, C, I picked it all up. Which means, and this is very important, the only standard by which you can measure whether um, God's message is getting through is you would have to ask God. So you have to adopt God's point of view. Okay. This is a, this is a, um, a background for, what I'm gonna, for the idea of klipa versus, so the idea of sitrach or the other side versus the side of holiness. The side of holiness are those aspects of reality which God feels really capture his intent, really convey what he means. Where the message is being clearly given over. And aspects of reality where that is not the case are not the side of holiness. So for instance, sometimes when you speak, your words do a very good job in your own estimation of really capturing what you wanted to say and why you wanted to say it, right? Now, it could be the listener didn't understand what you meant. That's a separate point. And sometimes when you're speaking, even as you're speaking, you don't really feel like what you're saying really captures, really conveys. Sometimes you're, you're at a loss for words or you're saying something and the word just seems it's too... 
it's too cliche, it's too shallow, it's too coarse, it's, it's too wordy for that matter. And you feel like you're not doing a good job of bringing out what you really want to say. And then there are times you feel like as far as your act of speaking, you really p- put into words what your full intent was, your full meaning is. Then there's a separate question, what the listener picked up on. So when God creates certain things, he looks at certain things and says, this, this does a good job of expressing me. Who I am, what I'm about, this does a good job. And then other things, it's like, nah, the message is all garbled. There's no way out of that to figure out where I'm really coming from. Now, is it the case, that's very important, that if I look at something which is in the side of holiness, I might have zero clue as to what God really meant? I mean, the obvious example of this is what happens if someone in the most eloquent prose conveys to you their deepest emotions, but they happen to be speaking a language you don't understand. Right? The problem is not that the words don't really convey their intent. The problem is you don't speak the language. Okay? Or worse, you speak a similar language. Why is that worse? Because you think you understand. Because you think you understand. Right? Um, there's a joke, which may or may not be true, but in Yiddish, the word darf means must or required. And in German, I don't speak German, so I'm, I've heard this, darf means may, as in like permission. And so the joke goes is that there was a shlucha in Germany who was teaching a kid, and she put some cookies on the table, and the kid said, and asked if he could have one, and the word he used to ask for may was darf, was, may I have one? But since she, her first language was Yiddish, she heard, do I have to have one? Mm-hmm. And so she said no, and he was sad. Then he asked again, and she said no. And then he's like getting very frustrated, like, why'd you put the cookies here if you won't let me have one? And she keeps asking why he keeps thinking he has to eat the cookies if he doesn't want one. Because the same word means two different things in similar languages, okay? So it could be that God says, the Shabbos candle reveals who I really am. And I look at the Shabbos candle, I'm like, I don't get it. That's a, that's a problem of, 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 of me as a listener not knowing how to appreciate what the speaker is saying. But it doesn't mean that the speaker's words, from their point of view, aren't doing a really good job of capturing the intent. And then there are other things like, say, And then there are some things that God says, like who I am and what I'm about is no way being conveyed by this at all. Why those such things exist, how he creates them, those are all interesting questions. We're not going to deal with that right now. Those things, God, you know, it, it, from God's point of view, they're something else. They're not what I'm about. If holiness is about revealing who God really is, these are something else. 
And so in Aramaic, they're called Sitrach, which just means the other side. Okay. Now, could it be the case that a person who, I don't know, eats the most delicious pork sandwich in the world and says, I feel the divine bliss coming over me and be convinced that they just encountered the creator? I mean, it could be the case, right? And it's also the case that you might be really convinced you understood somebody's intentions and you don't. Right? So we always want to be careful that when we're, we're, we're in life, and especially when we're learning chassidus, to keep in mind that God is a real being the way we're a real being. And God has a point of view the way we have a point of view. And there is a rule about beings with points of view and, 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 and a frame of reference, which is just because I experience something some one way does not mean someone else does experiences that, that same way. 99% of conflicts can be resolved if you realize your perception of reality is not someone else's. So could you feel close to God in something that God doesn't feel close to you? Sure. And vice versa, could God feel close to you in something you don't feel close to him? Yeah. Does that make, that, that's something to work out. But if you can realize that that happens, then you're already, you know, 90% of the way there. Okay. So that's Klippa. Or sorry, that's Sitracha. What does Klippa mean? Klippa, you said, means covering over. It literally means a shell or a husk or a peel. Okay. So it's very important. The standard analogy for a Klippa is a walnut shell. So when you think Klippa, unless otherwise indicated in the text that that wouldn't make sense in the analogy, think of like a walnut shell. Now, if someone handed you a walnut and you'd never seen or heard of walnuts in your life, and they said, this is food, probably one of two things would happen. Either you would take a bite and be very upset, or you would examine it and be very upset, right? Because they're clearly misleading you. Because the walnut shell does such a very good job of giving off the impression there's nothing edible there if you pay attention to it, and if you bite into it, it doesn't feel or taste edible in any way. Now, if you, for some strange reason, do crack open the shell and discard the shell, what do you discover inside? That there's food. So why would we call Sitra Akhra by another name, Klippa? What? It has layers to it. What happens if you crack through the layers? What? It has holiness. It turns out that even though we say that things are, there's the side of holiness and then there's, there's the other side, the other side, it's not lacking holiness. It, it, it's like a shell that covers over the holiness inside of it. So going back to my analogy about speaking, when someone speaks and the words don't do a very good job of conveying what they mean, they're still trying to say something, Right? So there still is a deep meaning buried in there somewhere if you can break through all of the, all of the words that aren't doing a good job of communicating. So the difference, therefore, between the side of holiness and the sitrachah, just one second, is that in the side of holiness, God says, my intent is coming through clearly. And in the side of sitrachah, the intent, the holiness is there, but something is covering it over and blocking it so you can't directly access it. That's why it's called a klipa. It's not a lacking of holiness. It functions as a concealment of holiness. And therefore, everything that is klipa, everything that is the other side, everything that is unholy actually has holiness in it. It's just you can't get at it 
unless you break through the shell. It's a question of what does it mean to break through the shell, but we'll get to that. Yes. Okay. So far, so good? They're the same entity, the same reality, but they're called by, but it's two names refer to different, I, different ideas, different aspects. In as much as it's not holiness, what's called? Sitrach, or the other side. In as much, it's not lacking holiness, it's just covering over the holiness, making the holiness inaccessible, it's called klipa, a shell or a peel. Not murky, concealed, like, like think of like opaque, like a walnut shell. It doesn't, it doesn't give off the sense of anything at all. There's That's the... Concealing the true essence. Right. So it seems unholy. Well, uh, uh, so this gets, I don't, uh, what you said in the beginning. From the outside, it truly is unholy. It's only holy if you break through that layer. Like the walnut shell really isn't food. And as long as you're trying to eat the walnut with the shell and through the shell, you're going to have problems. If you can somehow get past the shell and discard the shell, then you're right. So if you can get rid of the, the shell, you get rid of the klipa, then you got rid of the sitra and then what's left is just holiness. But that is not such a simple matter. That's the basic general description. Okay. Now, what does our text say? That our soul or one of our souls, where does it come from? and What does that mean? What makes you, you? Is that an expression of God? Or a concealment of God? It's a concealment of God. Your soul, my soul, what makes us who we are is not... God doesn't look at them and say, oh yes, yes, this is a, this is, this, this, this says something about me, this reveals something about me, this is a get way to get to know me. God looks and says, like, that, that does not say anything about me. That is, that, is, that is a distortion. That is a corruption. Which would mean if you get in touch with yourself, assuming this was your only soul, would you be getting closer to God? No. On the other hand, it's also klipa. What does klipa mean? Which means deep, deep de- buried in there, is there something godly and holy? Okay, is that the godly soul? No, because we're not talking about the godless soul. The godless soul is a whole different entity. So it turns out like this. If you get in touch with your... Yeah. I thought you said the godless soul is technically within the animal soul. Right, but we're talking just about the animal soul itself. It turns out the animal soul itself is, itself is complicated. So can't you say that the godless soul within the animal soul is exactly why the animal soul is called Klippa? Nope. Because Klippa has godliness in it of itself. Everything has godliness in it. If it's holy, the godliness is fully expressed. If it's sitra'achra, the godliness is covered over. So even without the godly soul inside, the animal soul has to have its own Well, let me, let me throw this back at you. I can imagine you've learned enough chassidus to know that pigs have a spark of holiness in them. Okay. Does that mean they have a nefesh No. Okay. So your animal soul is no worse than a pig. It has a spark of godliness inside of it independent of the godly soul. Which means there's something very interesting about being a person. Set the godly soul aside. Forget the godly soul. We're not talking about it the rest of the chapter. 
If you try and get in touch with being a person, you're not going to get in touch with God. Because what makes you a person, your soul, is, we said, it's sitrachra, it's the side that doesn't reveal God. But on the other hand, if you can somehow break through that, whatever that means, which is a very vague and somewhat disturbing term, it turns out on some deeper level, who you are as a person does actually say something and reveal something about God. So I'm going to give you an analogy for this. Okay. Teenager slams the door and says to their parents in a very loud voice, I hate you and never want to see you again. What is the deep innermost meaning of that? Like, what are they, what's, if we go all the way, all the way, as far deep as we can into the most recesses of the unconscious mind, what's motivating all of that? They slam the door and say, I hate you and I want to see you again. Say, what? Well, yeah, but anger is not the deepest part of your psyche. You've got to go, okay, there's anger. Behind the anger is probably some kind of sadness or pain. Let's go beyond that before the anger, before the pain. I mean, there's an expectation of love that's not being fulfilled. And before the expectation of love, there's a sense of connection and belonging, right? They have a sense of connection and belonging, which means that they have an expectation of receiving love. And now they're not receiving love in the way they want because they're a teenager and like getting all teenagers is impossible. So it's not like they say the parents' fault, but that's just the way it is. And now they're hurt and because they're hurt, they're pained. And because they don't have a way of dealing with that pain in the most productive manner, they deal with it by expressing anger. Okay. So if we can work through all of that, it turns out what they're really saying is, Mommy, I feel really connected to you. But <laughs> is that what they're saying? No. Right? That's like a lot of... Blo- there's like, like, on the one hand, you, if you look at it starting from the innermost part, that is true. But if you're looking at what's actually the reality of it, that's not, what, that's not what's coming out. So much so that does the teenager even know that that's what's really motivating them? Such if you go to them and say, oh, you must feel really connected to your mother. That's why you said, <laughs> no, I don't. Because we're not always aware of that. So this would be a psychological analogy for the idea that you can have something which the core of it is good, but the way it actually exists covers over that core so fundamentally, so powerfully, that if you're looking at it the way it actually exists, the way it's actually experienced, there's no way to really get at that core unless you break down the layers. So which means, yeah. Yes, godliness and holiness can be used interchangeably. Good and godliness cannot be used interchangeably, as we'll see in the continuation of the chapter. Okay. So what this means is like this. If we take our experience of our own being, our own life, who we are, and every, our soul, as presented to us, as, we, as people normally, naturally experience it, that does not awake to get any closer to God as far as God is concerned. It might be you feel closer to him, but he doesn't like, feel like you're getting closer to him at all. However, if you can do something to kind of break through that fundamental human soul and get at what's underneath that, then there is something there that actually does 
God, which actually does convey a sense of who God really is and what God is really about. So that's the first thing to know about the soul. What's the second thing to know about the soul? It's clothed in the blood of a human being, giving life to the body, as is written, for the life of the flesh is the, in the blood. Okay? So it's clothed in the blood, and the reason why it's clothed in the blood is to give life to the body. So let's talk about that. What does it mean to give life to something? Forget I mean, body, not body. Let's ignore that for a second. What does it mean to give life to something? Wouldn't be an example of something giving life to something other than saying the soul gives life to the body because that's the thing we're trying to understand. Yeah. What does that mean? You give it life. Explain. You're giving it a place in our world and in our mind. You're allowed to sustain itself. You're allowed to sustain itself. Okay. So, but you're. Let me let me put this back and tell me if that's what you're meaning, right? Because we want to make sure that I understand you. Okay. What you're saying is you allow the thing to continue to exist? Is that what you mean? Like, there's a rumor, and if you don't repeat it, it will continue to exist. If you don't repeat it, it will eventually just stop existing. Which is different than if you're the first one to say it, and then you bring it into existence. Okay. Okay. So, I would agree with your analogy, but I would explain it slightly differently. That when you repeat a rumor, you don't just keep it into existence. You make it more interesting you make it more enticing. You make it more powerful than when you heard it. You're not putting it on life support. You're enhancing it. If by nothing else than the fact that more people talking about something itself makes the thing seem to be more relevant. Right? What everybody's talking about has a certain power. So even that fact there's more people talking about it. Something has more, life and existence are not the same thing. Existence is a question of is it or isn't it? Or on a more technical level, you could say, is it working, is it broken? So like, you know, if, if, you, if, you, put, if, you, if you put something in the refrigerator, you're not giving it life, you're just keeping it from spoiling. Right? If you plug something in, you're not giving it life, you're just allowing it to work. Otherwise, it's just dormant and useless. Giving life means thriving and flourishing and it's growing and it's powerful and it's impactful and there's more of it and, there's, and it, by its standards, is getting better and better. Right? Um, giving... If someone were to say my whole life is about something, what does it mean their whole life is about something? Like, I don't know, my, my whole life is about, you know, my project to, I don't know, write a novel. The person's whole life is about writing this novel. What does that mean? When, when does you see this person, they're really turned on, they're really enthusiastic, they're really excited, they're really driven, in as much as it, it's connected to the activity of writing the novel. And to the degree that things take them away from that, how do they look? They're just like, you know, they're doing what needs to get done, going through the motions. It's very interesting and also very sad. Many people's lives look as follows. They get up in the morning and they go to work. Why do they go to work? To make money, right? So going to work, they're not really living at work. There's, right, there's, the, work the work is not giving them life. They're not enlivened in any way by going to work, which is why most of them don't like it. Then they come home. 
Okay? And then what do they do at home? Use their money to do what? Well, some of those things are because like things to keep them in existence, right? And, and then the stuff to maintain that. That's also not really living. Right. And a lot of that then is arranging things so they can get back to work. Plus you need to sleep. And so then the question is, okay, and then at some point in life, a person turns around and says like, it's like, it's like I'm putting all this effort to maintain my own existence, but I'm not really alive. I'm not really living. And then the person starts to have issues. Okay. When we say this, when we speak about living, we're talking about this idea, like we spoke about yesterday, about really thriving, really flourishing, growing, and, you know, excitement, passion, interest, care, concern, vibrancy, joy. These are all signs of life as experienced by a human being. Yeah. What? Yeah. The, what, the line is talking about blood. Do you have do you have the text? Yeah. Okay. The line the line is for the uh, which is clothed in the blood of a human being, giving life to the body as is written. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Okay. I'll get to the idea of blood soon. So, enlivening something means you take it from being in a more passive, dormant, you know being on basic maintenance state to really being its true self. Okay. Okay. So, like, have you ever had this experience where, like, you meet, um, you meet a friend you haven't seen in a while and all of a sudden your mood just picks up and you feel just better and more optimistic and like life is worth living and all that stuff just because you're now interacting with this person you know what I'm talking about so what has that person done to you they've enlivened you a little bit okay on the other hand there are many things that they allow you to function they allow you to exist but you're still kind of in this passive um, more like I don't know zombie like state okay I'll give you the following little um, thought experiment. It says in the Torah, you should love Hashem because He's your life. It's a verse in the Torah. Love Hashem because He's your life. Now, if somebody were to tell you, look, without me, you're going to die. I'll keep you alive. You're going to do some weird stuff and live life in the exact way I want. Do you now feel like now you love them? No, that's like, I mean, isn't that like just an extremely disturbing version of a boss, right? A boss is like, you can, you can, I'll give you money to allow you to maintain your existence, but you can do what I want on my schedule, right? But now it's not just to maintain your existence, like you're, like whether you live, whether you're like alive or dead in the most literal sense, and you then, like, I'm going to demand you do things on my way 24-7. Most people don't love their bosses, then all the more so if that's your conception of what it means God gives you life. But on the other hand, if you have a person that whenever you're around them, whenever you're interacting with them, you feel like you're thriving, you're flourishing. And whenever when you're with them, you feel like you're missing something. When you start realizing that, you develop a desire to be with that person, right? Because that person is part of your life. And if it's powerful enough, they might be your whole life. 
And that's what the verse means, right? God is your life. What does that mean? It means that when you're with God, you feel really alive and vibrant and you're flourishing. And when you're separated from God, things are just survival mode. Now, does that mean, one second, listen, does that mean we all feel that way? No, that's why it's a commandment. It's a commandment to come to that realization. But that's, again, just to indicate that life doesn't just mean mere existence. Right? We're not saying that the soul just keeps the body technically from being decomposing, but it's much more than that. The whole vibrancy of, of what it is to be who we are and what we can experience, that's what the soul is giving to the body. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you. The only group of religious people that I know are Orthodox Jews in any real like, close proximity. And I can tell you, basically speaking, Orthodox Jews, broadly speaking, divide into three categories when it comes to love of God. Which is that there are those Jews, um, I'm not going to give you numbers, but there are those Jews who, they're observant and they don't really have much of a relationship with God. Like, God is like, in the sense that we keep terminals, obviously there's a God and like whatever, but like on a day-to-day level, like God is an abstraction. God is like something I heard about when I was a child. God is not someone I am in any way having any relationship and not necessarily do I even care to. Like God is real. He made the world. We live this way and like God does do his thing. I'll do my thing. And you know, it's like, you know, the government also exists. I don't have a personal relationship with the government. That's fine. You know, you have to follow the rules and it's the way we live our life. And you know, they take the religion very seriously because the right way to live and that's fine but God is very abstract distant and personal that's one way I know a lot of Orthodox Jews that that's the way it is there's another group where God is just code for some kind of um, state of 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 of, of uh, spiritual arousal. Human beings can have many different abilities to experience different things. We can understand intellectually, we can feel emotionally, we can appreciate aesthetics with our senses. We also have a spiritual side. And, you can, and, it, and, and like any other of our senses, it can be aroused and manipulated. You can create the same spiritual effect using certain things like crowds and rhythm and beats. And like going to a sports game can be a spiritual experience. So there are people that when they say God, they just, they're, they're just code for heightened experiences of spiritual experience. That's like the divine point you're further, that or whatever Probably, yeah, probably. And, one second. and then there is another, which is which group of people. And by the way, it's not like these are clear lines. People like move in between, the, tend to gravitate one place to the other. They move throughout their lives. The other one is where God is an, someone that I am struggling to actually have a relationship with. And that struggle has parallels to other interpersonal struggles, such as interpersonal struggle between a person and their parents, between a person and a friend, between a person and their teacher, between a person and their spouse, between a, and it has elements of all of those, but it is a struggle because there's someone who, who, who has power, and I have power, has perspective, and I have perspective. 
And the disparities in that are a technicality in the relationship. Like in any relationship that's a real relationship, I mean, I'm more powerful than my kids, okay? But that's a technicality in the actual interpersonal relationship. Because if that becomes the defining characteristic, it's not a relationship, I'm just like, you know, there's, I'm, not intera- I'm not connecting to them as people. Um, and so in that, right, that there's a being, you know, that's not me, that's different than me, um, and on some level cares about me, and on some level I care about this being, and on some level I appreciate this being, and some level appreciates me, and on some level I don't understand, and some level doesn't understand me, and on some, right? And, and it has elements of all different kinds of interpersonal and you struggle, and you grapple, and sometimes you're just not in the mood for it, and sometimes you work on it, and, and that, I would say, um, you know, it's in that context the commandment to love God can make sense. Because in that context, you can say, okay, work on coming to appreciate that when you're getting along with this other being, you actually, you're, you're thriving in a different way, in a different place. It's like telling a person that's having a hard time in their marriage, a hard time with their parents, that like, realize like, how good it feels when you do get along and now you can like, work on the relationship. That's one of the reasons why you be careful speaking about God because people need different things. Those are broad categories, by the way. Okay. Fine. So this soul, okay, it gives life to the body. What does it mean it gives life to the body? Okay. Yeah. If someone finds, like you're saying, someone goes to a football match and they find godliness in that, could that not mean that they're so connected to their souls that like any way they go in any place that they're in, they have that, soul, that connection to Hashem that like, Every single physical act is a spiritual connection. So I really don't like answering questions like that because that's like dictating what somebody's going on in somebody's you know inner world without actually knowing them, and it's not like people you know are all the same. God willing, you will all get married, and one of the things that you will encounter when you get married is that your sense of where the relationship is holding and your spouse's sense of where the relationship is holding will not always be the same thing. In fact, it can very often be the case that one of you feels like you're really close and the other one feels like there's no understanding at all. Why that is is complicated, but the fundamental thing is because you're different beings with different minds. So it could be that there is somebody who has some notion of something they call God in their mind that they're very in touch with. And that is accentuated and highlighted by all sorts of regular, everyday experiences or things that are known to manipulate human beings' spiritual sensitivities like crowds and you know, stuff like that. And as a result, they feel like, yes, I found God and close to God in, in this thing. And, and you can't deny the reality of what they're going through. But then you can't say that that is an accurate description of a relationship with another being because then you have to come see all the other beings. And how do you experience what's going on? And then you have to see, okay, where's the overlap in your experience? The real relationship is measured by the degree of overlap in your subjectivity. If I'm experiencing how we're getting along in a way that overlaps how you're experiencing, like if I think I'm doing a good job explaining this stuff and you think I'm doing a good job explaining this stuff, that's good. But if I think I'm doing a good job and you don't think I'm doing a good job, or vice versa, you think I'm doing a great job and I don't feel like I'm getting the points that I want to get across, you can't measure relationship by one side, which by the way means the other way as well, right? You can't look at the person who's very, very religious doing all the Torah mitzvahs properly and, and doesn't really feel connected to God and say, okay, they have a great relationship with God either. There has to be that overlap. And that's a, that's a thing to navigate. And that's a lot of what Chassidus is 
giving us perspective and tools to deal with. So it's not about invalidating the truth of what they're saying, it's just saying, well, but you're not describing a relationship, you're describing your experiences. No one's denying that's what you, that's, that's the way you experience what you experienced. Okay, so, it's, so we have a body. What is a body? A body is a piece of meat, a complicated piece of meat, but that's basically what it is. Different parts of this meat do different things such as there's a part of the meat which moves the meat around. What's that called? Brain. No. Yes. The legs. The, le- the legs move the... <laughs> okay. There's what? We're not referring to a piece of meat. No, we are going to refer to no, a piece of meat. Not this is important. Because then you will understand what it says here. It is a piece of meat. Yes. Okay. She's not a cannibal. She's Okay, then we have, another, we, have another, we have another part of the meat which allows us to manipulate the world around us. What's that part of the meat called? Hands. Hands. Okay. <laughs> we have another part of the meat, we have another part of the meat that allows us to be aware of the appearance of things. Eyes. Yeah. The vibrations caused by things interacting with each other. Ears. Ears. We're going, to be, we're going to be very specific with the brain. We're going, to, we're going to be specific with it in a second, okay? We're going to get to the brain last. We have another part, okay? We have another part, which I'm going to say this in a very abstract way, which facilitates levels of arousal and dormancy. Arousal means things are very turned on and heightened, and dormancy means things are very low-key. What part is that? The heart, right? Like, for instance, when you get scared or angry or passionate, right? Heart rate changes and that causes a bunch of other things to change. You get flushed and blah, 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 blah. And then you can be very passive and dormant, lower your heart rate. Okay. And that's more complicated. If you want to broaden, you can say it's a little cardiovascular system. If you want to be more limited, you call it the heart. Okay. That, by the way, has a subjective quality associated with it, which is what we call feelings, which is why, we're just going to cover this now, Chassidus always treats feelings as being part of the heart. Being part of the heart. Because the subjective thing that we experience as feeling is actually embodied through changes in what's going on in your heart and lungs. No, it does actually. There's a different. I know, I'm leaving out the brain. I'll get to the brain in a second. We'll get the. What I mean is like this, okay? It is a piece. Everything's a piece of meat. Right? I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. We can't do anything, really. As I illustrated this to my son two nights ago, three nights ago. What was your son? I have several, but this one was 10. I mean, he still is 10. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't had a birthday in the middle. Um, okay. And then the last is we have a piece of meat which is really good at processing and organizing many things into a cohesive whole. What part of the meat does that? The brain. The brain. Hence, the brain is obviously implicated now in everything else. Okay. And there is an activity that we do which is solely that, which is cognition, thinking, reflecting. Okay. And then there are activities that we do are that plus something else, such as you know, being angry or being happy, which are changes in the cardiovascular system with some processing or seeing or hearing, which are the sense organs, or walking around for that matter, right? 
So all of the other parts of the meat always involve the brain and them working together to achieve something because you need coordination. But sometimes you're doing something that's just basically making things work together in the abstract and that's what we call the intellect. Which, which is why we think so that was happening just in the brain. Okay. Here's the thing, it's all meat of various forms. Okay. So, we can take all of those descriptions and flip it around and instead of talking about them as meat, we can talk about them about ways of really experiencing being alive. Okay. For instance, right, um, it's not just that you can move things around with your hands, right? but some people actually enjoy the experience of drawing or knitting or you know, using their hands. It's, like a, it's, a, way of, it's a way of actually you know, experiencing and bringing yourself out. There's aesthetics. You can go to museums and you see things. You can look at the, go to the park and watch the sunset, right? Dance, exercise, sports, emotions, right? Having relationships where you feel ups and downs. You, by the way, if you want to feel the ups and downs without the complexities of relationships, you can have fiction, right? Artificially stimulate that. Right? Fiction? Fiction. That's what fiction does. It artificially stimulates fiction. the ups and downs of relationships <laughs> no, without the complexity, right? It's like for five, like, 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 for the next, for the next three hours, I'm going, I'm going to read a book or watch a movie, and I will, I will get all of the, the subjective experience of being in a relationship without actually having the complexities of a real relationship. Yeah. It's like drugs. It's like drugs for your emotions. That's why it's addictive. Okay. Um, or you can, you know, or you can try and make sense of any aspect of reality is kind of a thing in and of itself or as a precursor to something else. And that's what we call, you know, rationalizing, introspection, thinking, pondering, etc. So you can describe all of these things as, you know, activities where you do something and something happens. Or you can think of them more subjectively as your own, as a mode, as a way of experiencing your own life, your own thriving and flourishing. So I'm going to illustrate this in a, with the fact that people come in different forms. Like some people are intellectuals and some people are not. It's not good to be intellectual, it's not bad to be intellectuals. It, and it's not like you come in like an on-off switch either. What do I mean by an intellectual? Some people, if they encounter ideas, what happens? They feel alive, they turn on, they're enthusiastic, they're engaged. Some people, if they encounter ideas, like, okay, I mean, if I need the idea, I'll, I'm, not, I'm not dumb, I'm smart, I'm even smarter than the guy who's intellectual. But ideas aren't the way I really experience living. I experience living, I don't know, by like knitting. I actually know somebody like that. Like, okay. But they experience what? Like, they really experience feeling alive and like they're thriving by knitting. Is it secretly me? What? No, it's not secretly me. <laughs> 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 I, I, I'm somewhat of an intellectual, which means that if it's not, if you can't be put in a conceptual framework, it's like, okay, fine, it exists, can we move on to something interesting? But then there are people like, you know, I, I know people who are, who, are, who, are, who are brilliant, and they're just like, they couldn't care about ideas. It's just like, okay, fine, like, it's an idea, I'm like, whatever, like, what they care about is like something, you know, the complexities of real life relationships with people. Every, and, and again, very rarely someone all in one of these things. So people tend to gravitate towards different modes of feeling their life. So that means there's something more than just meat happening. There's, a, there's an experience, a quality of living, but living through what the body can facilitate. The body can facilitate moving around. It can facilitate moving objects and manipulating them. It can facilitate states of arousal. It can facilitate making, you know, putting complex things together and taking them apart. 
And so you can experience life in those ways. Are there other ways of experiencing living? Sure, but they don't work through the body and therefore we don't know what they are. The thing that wants to experience life to the fullest through the way that the body can facilitate it, what is that? That's the soul we're talking about. Now, in each soul, it's a little different. My soul clearly wants to experience life mostly through the brain, right? And other people, mostly through their hands. But no one's entirely their brain or entirely their hands. And without that, the body is just like it's a piece of meat that moves around and does something. It's just like basically a zombie. The fact that there's an inner sense of really being alive and, 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 and flourishing through using whatever your, the different parts of the meat can do, that's because we don't think of it as meat anymore. We think of it as ourselves, and that's the soul clothed in the blood, and the blood is what runs through the whole body, right? Making it function, right? So, the, 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 so this idea that the soul is in the blood is the idea that this soul is everywhere in the body. It's all about the body, but it's not about keeping the body working. It's about what can be experienced through the body. Everything from dance to ideas to hamburgers, everything. Any kind of real experience of living, this soul engages with. And each person has unique inclinations towards experiencing more in this way and more in that way, but... That's basically what the soul is. And does that mode of being bring you closer to God? Tie it back together. No. Because it's klip and sitrachna. But if you can break through that somehow, there's something buried inside of that which is holy and godly? Yes. Okay, that's the first soul. Would you like to hear a story? Okay. So my 10-year-old tells me few minutes ago, we're learning. He says the brain controls everything. Three old. Ten year old. The brain controls everything. This is all in Hebrew, but I'm just and I was I said, no, the brain doesn't control anything. Well, he says, yeah, because the brain, you know, this the brain, that the brain, so the brain is controlling it. And so we go back and forth for about like half a minute. I said, Do you know what a brain is? He says, Yeah, it's, it's the thing in here. I said, Yeah, but what is it? He says, you know, it's the the, 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 the thing in here. I said, Yeah, well, what What's it made of? I don't know. He says, you know, it's just a piece of meat. No, can't be. He said, yeah, it's a piece of meat. So I showed him a picture of a human brain. Not an illustration, an actual picture. And a picture of cow brains. Say, see, they look the same. This is cow brain, right? And in many places in the world, this is food. This is human brain. Do you see a big difference? No. In fact, does it look vaguely similar to stuff we put in a chalant? It does. No. So he looks at this for a second. He looks at this for a second, and he starts laughing. He says, and this is, in, he says in Hebrew, he says, even the biggest heretic would have to conclude that there's, that there's a soul in the brain. That, that, the brain, it's a piece of meat. It can't control anything. That was his conclusion. Because, like, clearly the stuff that you eat in a chalant isn't in control of your life. So then he asked me a follow-up question, which is, then why do people say that you think with your brain? I say, well, they say that you write with a pen, but the pen isn't doing the writing. There's a you doing the writing. So there's a you thinking using the brain as a kind of a tool. And that's the soul. And it's really interesting in what's the, how can I think best with my brain and feel the most with the heart and do the most with my hands in a way that I really feel alive and I'm thriving and flourishing. And, and, and that's what the soul is. Is this your evil inclination? No, this is basically being a human being. Right? This is basically saying humanity 
in Kabbalistic words. Okay. Okay, now, from it, from this soul, stem all the evil characteristics. So optimistic. Deriving from the four evil elements which are contained in it. What? They skip. What? Blood is because blood is the thing that flows throughout the whole body. What thing? goes throughout the whole body and kind of makes it a functioning, organized, like, I mean, think about it, right? Like, the blood stops flowing, then it's it, right? So, the, the part of the, the part where the kind of, the, 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 the soul, which wants to experience everything possible through the body, kind of interacts and meets the body, is in the flow of the blood. And if the blood stops flowing, the soul... I mean, just think about it. The souls can't. And in fact, even more so, if you're, if you slow, it, it, when, when you're, when, even on a, on a simple level, if you, if you like lie down on your arm and it falls asleep and the blood, right, there's, it, the blood flow is sufficiently weakened, right, you lose even the sensation that, that there's even a you in your arm. I had a student who was in the American Army and he had a tendency to sleep on his arm and it would fall asleep. One time he was in Afghanistan. Uh, he's, he's an officer, a bunch of officers, a bunch of soldiers under him, and they're at Afghanistan in the middle of the night somewhere. And he wakes up at like three o'clock in the morning. He feels something on his, and so he jumps up and grabs his <laughs> and starts screaming. Oh and it was his own arm because he couldn't feel himself in his arm. Why? Because there was a problem with which part? The blood. So that's the idea of the blood. There's more involved in the blood, but that's as much as I want to get into for this class. Yeah. Their soul is still connected to the body, but is having a very hard time experiencing itself through the body, which is why probably, I mean, there's different kinds of brain dead life support things, I and mean, they're not all in the same category, I'm not an expert, which is why sometimes they can experience things and sometimes they can't experience things, and that's very vague and unclear, but as a general rule, um, halacha would, Jewish law views them as still being alive since you can't kill them. Um, that would be murder. There's a lot more details to that. That's not my field of expertise. Okay. Fine. So from it stem all the evil characteristics from the four evil elements which are contained in it. Okay, so everyone knows that there are only four elements, right? Mm-hmm. That you learned in chemistry, that there are only four elements. What did you learn in chemistry? Hundreds? There aren't hundreds of elements in chemistry. No, like four, like state, like four. There, is, there, there, are, there are over a hundred elements, but there's not hundreds. Yeah, over a hundred. Okay. So, it, it's more. It's like, I think they have... They said added periodic table that they just put in there. Okay. So, the thing is like this. What does the word element mean? Forget chemistry, forget anything. Look, look, just what is, what, when we say something is an element, an element, elemental, yeah. it's, what does that mean? Part of something. It is part of something, that is true. It's made up of atoms. No. Actually, historically, no, this is actually very important. Historically, the idea of atoms and the idea of elements were two conflicting ideas, which is important to note. So it's funny that we use the word elements for atoms. We just mean that there's 116 different kinds of atoms. Okay. Elements, right, the, the, 
elements is that when you reduce something to its most basic aspects, okay, those are, so to speak, the elements of the thing. Now, so in chemistry, there's a notion that like you build things up by putting different atoms together. So then if you get a list of all of the atoms, then those are the basic elements that you're working with. Okay. If you're talking about a story, right, then you might think of elements more in terms of genres and archetypes. Like if you're, if you're trying to create a kind of a story, like, okay, well, is this, you know, is this, a, is this a tragedy? Is this a drama? Is this a comedy? What kind of, you know, we're dealing with the, you know, the valiant hero and the, you know, the princess who needs to be saved, to use really cliche archetypes, right? But you're working with certain themes, genres, archetypes. Those are kind of the elements of stories, right? Um, so the idea is that in anything that, ex and this is the, the ancient idea, I'll get to the second, the Jewish idea, but the ancient idea of elements is basically like this, is that if you look at something and you kind of put on someone else's glasses where like the details start to become fuzzy, you know what I'm talking about? You put on someone's glasses and like, if you kind of get, what are the most basic raw themes or aspects of the kinds of things that we're dealing with? Those are the, those are the basic elements, okay? And what, now, in Judaism, there are four, okay? And the reason there are four is God decided to create the world using four basic themes. So everything that exists on any level of existence has four basic aspects to it, four basic dimensions to it, four basic themes to it. Now, they're manifest in different ways. In a physical entity, they're manifest one way, in a spiritual one way, in psychological another way. Um, and there are physical things in the wor earth, in, in, our, in the world, which actually do a good job of being really good examples of these elements, but they are not the elements themselves. Okay. Um, let, me, let me give you an example. What would be a good example of a drama? Book or movie, I don't care. Romeo and Juliet. Okay. Does that mean Romeo and Juliet is drama itself? No. It means that like, if you wanted to like say like here, if I wanted to explain what drama is, I might refer to that because it's like a really good unambiguous example of drama. I'm, I'm not getting whether that's true or not. Let's just pretend that it is. Okay. I don't know much about you know literature enough to have an opinion on it. Okay. But there are things which are like they might be dramas, but they're also equally comedies, and so they wouldn't really be good useful ways of explaining what drama is because there's too much other stuff mixed in. Right? You could think of something that's like a drama and a comedy together. So. No, but can you think of an example of a, of a movie or a book that would be like that? <laughs> so now, if, if you wanted to explain to someone what drama is, would you use that as the example? They'd no clue what you meant by drama. No, because it's too much other stuff mixed in. So if you want to explain to someone what the element of fire is, you know what's a good example to use? Fire. If you want to explain to them what the element of water is, you know what an example to use is? Water. But is water the element of fire, of water? No. If you want to use a good example of the element of earth, taking a rock or some dirt would be good, but that's not the element of earth itself. Because water, the element of water is a theme. Of it being wet. So, so, so <laughs> oh, they are physical, they're not atomic. Meaning like this, do physical things have coolness, adhesion, um, what are some of the other properties that, are, that go into this theme? Coolness, adhesion, um, 
flowing, flexibility, right? Is that a proper, is that those physical properties? And the physical properties of other things too? So that set of properties is called the element of water. So my orange juice is also has the You want to see the element of water in this paper cup? Yes. What allows <laughs> it to have that flexibility? The molecules in it? No. So the, the you're, think, you're thinking of it at the time. There is no water in this. It's flexible. The flexibility of it is called the element of water. Or is it the properties of the cup? Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to tell you, is that the idea of elements, you have to like, there's no way to, sometimes a concept has gone so far out of a culture that you're not used to it anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay? You are used, probably used to think of hearing things like genres and movies and books, themes, maybe if you study some literature archetypes. But when it comes to physical things, you think of everything in terms of little building blocks. But step aside from the building blocks. Is it true about all physical things, they have various degrees of hardness? They have various degrees of heat? Various degrees of adhesion or lack thereof? Okay, can you kind of group these things into basic themes and patterns that have nothing to do with the atomic makeup whatsoever? That in how we experience the world? Yeah, and that's what this is describing. This is describing a qualitative element of physicality. But it's a result of those physical so, properties. So but it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter. God created the world. Like, it's like, think about this. If you have a movie, right? So the director wants it to have a certain amount of drama. Like, how he goes about creating that drama is irrelevant. Like, he, like first he has, I want there to be a certain amount of drama. And then, like, how am I going to make that come about? God wants this to have a certain amount of flexibility. And then how he makes it flexible, that's a side point. So it's not about what it's composed of. It's about it's what compo- that manifests So, so this, is the, this is the issue. If you, it depends what you, what, what you take as your grounding of reality. If you take things that are very quantitative, that, that can be measured in ones, twos, threes, and fours as your basic level of reality, right, which is how chemistry, modern chemistry works, then you use comp- composed of in terms of like, well, how many protons are there? And how many neutrons are there? And how many electrons are there? Because those are, you can count them. But if you actually think about it, the way we experience life, it's not like that. We think of things as being comprised of qualitative things. Like this, go back to things that have a literature, like, like it's had a certain amount of humor and a certain amount, I mean, you know, like, like what, does it have five units of humor or six units? Like, no, it's, 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 a, it's a qualitative assemblage of, of different basic themes. And if you look at the way we experience the physical world, it's actually how we, we categorize things in terms of softness and hardness and hotness and coldness. That's, and when God created the world, because God created the world focused on our experience of the world because it's about our relationship with God, the main themes that God was focused on, so which is for God like the basic level of reality, are those qualitative things. Like the director of a movie, the basic level of reality they're working on is the feel of the movie as a piece of art, not the technicalities of like how you do the lighting. Although that's important as much as creating it. So we're not, it, it's, it's two different ways of thinking about reality. If you think about reality as fundamentally a bunch of Legos and then the, what can you build with them, that's one way. Right? Or if you think of reality as Beings with real experiences moving through reality, what are the basic categories of experience that things can facilitate? And God says we're gonna use four basic categories. And that's gonna be true on the physical level, it's gonna be true on the psychological level, it's gonna be true on the spiritual level, it's gonna be true on the godly level, it's gonna be true on every level. And it parallels. Why he wants four? I don't know. I mean I do know, but it doesn't matter right now. <laughs> 
but but they're but they're 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 they're, they're big themes within each of them. There's more subtypes. Right. Just thinking about like heat, like we can assign like we like to assign numbers to things. Or, like, well, we to like to assign numbers right. to things because we live after Isaac Newton, but that's actually a relatively recent human experience. Right. Yeah, scope of humanity. We could. We could. Get rid of all of that. Get rid of all of that and go back to the basic raw experience of the movies in themselves. Forget what we know about, like, hardness scales. Right. Just, it's, it's all relative. That, that's ex- part of it is the only thing that's not subjective. Well, it's not subjective because it's not... So this is... It's not subjective. So the reason we do that is... So, a little bit of intellectual history for a second. Up until around four or five hundred years ago, um, in the Western world, there was a notion of God. And one of the roles that God played is God was the arbiter of objective reality. Okay? So you would just, and, and this is still left over if you study like philosophy. Philosophers who are atheists will still say, like, does God have to do this and do God do this? When he's like from some objective standard. But like, God plays the role of like, the, what is objectively real and not is determined from, quote, God's point of view. But, you know, in the ancient, you know, in, in the ancient or in the world of antiquity in the medieval world, that wasn't just like a, a convention of philosophy. That was taken as like the way the world actually is. Reality is determined by God's perspective. God sees something to be a certain way, then that is the way it actually is. That's what brings it into being. Okay. Well, what happens if that idea shifts and we move to a more humanistic perspective in the sense that the human experience is at the center? Well, now we ran into a very serious problem, which is my subjective experience of things doesn't really line up with yours totally. Until we discover there's one element of our subjective experiences that all line up, which is counting. And so then we decided let's use that as the objective basis to understand everything else. And that was really useful in chemistry and it was really useful in engineering and it was really useful in calculating where the stars are going to be 100 years from now. You know what it has not turned out to be incredibly useful for? Developing deep senses of who we are, our place in the reality, our purpose, and where we're coming from, what we're about. Because those things don't, right? To get those into things that you can count requires so many layers upon layers of association that the original thing is lost. Even in things like, like art and literature, moving into something quantitative is controversial because there's a huge argument. You're losing something. You might be, you, you might create an objective standard, which is nice for, you know, the fact that everybody can, can use it, but you've lost something because not necessarily is, 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 is when, you make, when you measure things, you're basically saying they're fundamentally equivalent. And sometimes things are qualitatively not fundamentally equivalent. It could be a little bit more comedy fundamentally changes the, what it's like to see that movie or read that book. And that's lost in how many instances of jokes there are when you just put it on a scale. And so as we move more towards the actual lived experience of real people, it's harder and harder. If you take that as, as a grounding, it's harder and harder. Now that does create the problem of what's objectively real or not. Now from the Tanya's point of view, which is you know, a religious book, that's still not a problem because you still have God. But if you take God out of the picture, it's like reality is really coming from God's point of view. You, you do have a problem that like on the one hand, we have this drive to take our deep subjective experience as the most thing that's fundamentally real. On the other hand, I run the problem of it's just between me and you. I have no way of resolving that. And then, you know, each pretending we're an island unto ourselves. Oh, and then we can take this other thing, quantitative thing, 
And it works in a lot of the more things that are removed from our deeper selves, like bridges, you know, and, you know, internet programming. But it doesn't really work in terms of things like identity, relationship, purpose, or even something as everyday as comedy. Yeah. Maybe it's it's more complicated than that. And it's 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 more complicated than that because I mean I don't want to I don't want to get into this um, too much because this for this you really do need to know math. Basically, what it's more it's not so much Einstein. I, it's somewhat both in in Einstein and both in general relativity and in quantum mechanics. Although for different reasons, it turns out the things that you the things that classically were thought to have objective numbers attached to them don't, but if you embed them into more complex equations, there are still objective numbers. They're just not associated with everyday experiences. Actually, more in quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is more objectively rigid than, yeah, yeah because in quantum mechanics, the wave function is, 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 has a, I don't know if anyone knows anything about quantum mechanics, but the wave function has a fixed time, con, a fixed time variable, whereas in general relativity, it doesn't, and that, whatever. Anyway, the point being, on, an, on, on like we, the things the things that you're measuring now are things that you can't actually experience. In other words, classically you could measure how heavy it is, and now you can't measure that. You have to measure something else, which requires abstract math. But it's still very rigidly quantitative. So, and, and this is not an issue of which is better or which is worse. But clearly, if you're talking about a book that a is guiding our relationship with God, so it's a relationship and b God. Clearly, we're going to adopt a way of making sense of reality that that takes that as the primary level, primary strata of what's real, and like the atoms are like incidental. And that, and that way you can kind of think of it like this, this analogy is actually used in Chassidus a lot, which is, are words made of letters or letters made of words? Which one comes first, words or letters? Words. No. Words. Words. First we have words, and then we have a need to do what with our words? Write, write them down and all of a sudden we need a way to represent the words and in doing that we break them into I mean, so the need is like right so it turns out what comes first first I have a word like father and then all of a sudden I'm like okay but I, I don't want to just be able to I want to be able to like communicate father in a way that I don't have to be present to the person I'm communicating to so I want to like put it on a piece of paper but I can't put father onto a piece of paper so I need to like how do I represent that? And so some cultures just had one symbol for every single word. That's cumbersome. Other cultures have one symbol for every single sound. It's called a phoneme. So you have a symbol for fa and a symbol for ther. But that's also complicated. And then there was one culture, only one culture, that said we can actually just have a symbol for each individual consonant. Because from the and consonants, you can than just and for everything else. What culture was that? What? The, that that was that was the uh, that that that's the ancient Hebrew culture, which is why people don't know this. The alphabet was only invented once in all of human history, or according to Torah, it was never invented; it was God given. So the Torah was the first idea of 
of, of breaking it into actual specific letters. Like in ancient Egypt, you didn't, you wouldn't have a let, you wouldn't have a letter F. You have a letter, what's called the, you have a symbol that means fa, another one means thur, another one the, another one is, another one s, and then if you have a word that has a few different syllables, you just group them together. But it means you have to learn hundreds of thousands of different symbols. And if you have like a language where you have, um, you know, each word, then it's even more. But, but the thing is, if you go back to the most basic level of human beings, right, on the level of speaking language, it's all just words. So it turns out that you first start with the word and then you break it into letters. So in that sense, God first starts out with the elements and then he may create some atoms to instantiate those elements if he needs to. But the, the elements are secondary. The atoms are secondary. Right? It's like the pixels on a screen. Like that you, you have them to get you the shapes and colors, but the shapes and colors are really the primary level of reality that the lived beings are interested in. And so what we're gonna see is that because of those, that, that thematic setup, everything has these four, ele four elements. And this soul also has these four elements, but in a negative orientation. And we're going to learn about that tomorrow. Good. All right. Thank you. 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 Science. That's my favorite. But I mean, it's like it's like you don't think about these. See, things that's why. Right? Something for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> like quantum physics.